not a prophet, but I've heard all the indications that Pastor Paul will be returning next week. In the meanwhile, I'd like to thank you all for coming to listen to this exhortation, and uh, I'd really like to thank my wife for being so supportive, and um, just today to feel the heartfelt uh, encouragement and prayer from just from when I walked in the door and to all the people that I talked to, um, it's just awesome. Uh, today's topic is going to be the love of God, particularly as it applies to love and marriage. And today's scriptural reading comes from 1 John 5, verses 2 to 3. Hear now God's word. By this we know the lo- that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together as a church to worship you. Uh, We hope that your word would continue to help us grow in your knowledge, that it would strengthen our marriages and our families, that we would be able to go out in the community and build your kingdom. Uh, We thank you for all the people that make this possible. In Jesus' name. So we're living in a time when the meaning of words has become so distorted that they are beyond recognition. The word love, to have a meaning, has to have an objective meaning. There has to be something that's included in the definition and something that's excluded from the definition. Words act as a linguistic placeholder for something in God's creation, something that's real and exists outside of us that you and I want to talk about. This is predominantly the objective understanding of language and words. Words become diluted when we start to introduce the subjective and autonomous view of words. Yes, the me-centered mindset has a built-in confusion of the language. And just like the Tower of Babel narrative, uh, confused language leads to incoherence and inability to form a common understanding. In the subjective world, love becomes more about my feelings and desires and less about some objective transcendent reality. Now, we all know that the word love has this overreaching appeal to goodness. You know, they seem to go hand in hand. We tend to apply it to anything that we enjoy, but when we do that, we kind of dilute the meaning of love and we distort it. Even though there's great pleasure in love, not everything that is pleasurable is included in love. The distortion of the meaning of love has now become a political weapon. After all, if love is so good, who wants to be against love? And if you're one of those people that goes against the secular notion of love, you can be declared to be a hater and even prosecuted um, under some hate speech laws in parts of the world. It's as though a love train has been filled with toxic chemicals and it's headed straight for your community. So how do we get out of this Orwellian mess where love is hate and so forth? If you're wondering whether it's... uh, If you're wondering whether love is what you're feeling, love is not just a feeling. 
love has objective standards, and these des- de- define what love is and how we love. We also see that love has a goal. Our love directs us to apply those objective standards for our, both our mutual and eternal benefit. I would, set, I would suggest to you that one definition of love or one test of love is whether or not your desires in your actions are leading someone to stand righteous before God. It's not just a feeling. If your feelings are directed in a different way, if your actions are directed in a different way, you better check your compass settings because love has a goal, and that is to, be, to stand righteous before God. You don't have to go far into the book of Genesis to realize that God used words. It took me a while to figure that out. Um, in the beginning, he said that it says that God said, and it was so, and God called it. We see the creative power of God's word. We see that he used words to name and represent things. And he also saw that God uses words to define certain qualities, such as goodness. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 1, verse 26. I'm going to read a a little bit here from the Bible. I hope that doesn't bother anybody. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. I'm going to fast forward to Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, 
he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, if it would be great if we could just stop the story here, but maybe we could hit the pause button for a minute and reflect on some of the things that happened. First, God, again, used words as a, mean to, as a means of creation. He also used words as communication. And this really anticipates day six when he creates man and woman with the hope that God would communicate with man and that man himself would communicate with his wife and his family and his community. He also, God gave Adam a particular privilege. Not only was he to have dominion over the creation, but he was also allowed to name the things that God had created. He had created these for his purposes. And we read in Colossians 1 that all things were made by him and for him. But apart from God, Adam was alone. And in contrast to the goodness of creation, God reveals a contrasting value when he he declares that it's not good for man to be alone. We also read at the completion of the Genesis 1 narrative that the creation of the man and the woman was very good. Furthermore, as we reach the, the, uh, the end of the second, the Genesis 2 narrative, we read that it says, and the two became one flesh. Now that word that it's used in Hebrew to describe that is echad. Um, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but at least that's how it sounds on the little recording in the G thing. Um, that word is also used in um, the great Shema, where it says, the Lord our God is one. And so that's really important for both Jew and Gentile to understand that when he says, hear, or, hear O Israel, he's not just saying, listen, he's saying it's a command, it's an exhortation to pay attention and understand that the Lord Yahweh, the symbol you know, the, by the capital letters in our Bibles, the Lord our God Elohim, uh, who is a plural God, one is singular, one is plural, more than two, is echad, is a compound unity. So the same word that's being used to describe God is being used to describe the relationship between a man and a woman in Genesis 2. So this should tell us something about the nature of marriage. That marriage is somewhat of a, a representation of God and that, um, that there's something about the triune God of Scripture that needs to be reflected in our marriages. So that's kind of the big idea, number one. We later read in 1 John 4, 16, that God is love. Yes, the fundamental meaning of love isn't something that exists outside of God. It's part of his triune character about the relationship, the eternal relationship that resides within God. The Greeks used to wonder, you know, what good was, where the good is. Was it something that all the gods had to subordinate themselves to? Was it this 
different concept. Well, goodness and love are all part of God's nature. God doesn't have to go outside of himself to define these things. And he doesn't need to subordinate himself to any of those things. So part of our relationship is marriage. We see the overflowing of God's grace and love by creating uh, mankind in his image, namely male and female. So if God is love, and marriage between a man and a woman is designed to represent something about, about God, then marriage between a man and a woman is designed by God as a frontline representation of God's love. It's like a definition by example. It's not just a definition. We get to kind of see it. Again, we, we see that God used language for communication between God and Adam, but also between husband and wife, and eventually between family and community. And just as though we're, just as though we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, we're also to take all our expressions and actions to be under the obedience of Christ. So our language needs to be subordinated to the true realities that are in Christ. God also uses marriage between a man and woman as the main means of establishing his kingdom. Now, I'm only a doctor, but marriage between a man and a woman just seems like the easiest way to be fruitful and multiply. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it's part of God's plan, the history turns the page. And through disobedience, we move from an environment where Adam and Eve realized and experienced all of God's grace to an environment of, the, of, uh, of consequences. Um, so this unrestrained grace is followed by unavoidable consequence. Man is ashamed. He tries to hide himself and he tries to hide from God. He enters into a struggle with his wife for leadership. Childbirth now becomes painful and the ground itself is battling against Adam. Furthermore, his children seem to become predict, uh, uh, progressively evil as you go from generation to generation. So we don't have to see, or we don't have to go too far today to see that both language, particularly love language and marriage, marriage language, uh, is, is under assault by the enemies of God. Again, God's, God uses language as a means of developing a common understanding with our neighbors and our spouses, and that language is being reduced to something unintelligible, and it reeks with this contradictory hostility. In the secular world, the nature and conditions of marriage have become so distorted that it's unrecognizable. Last night, I thought I'd look to see, well, how many types of marriage are there? Well, I ran into about 35. And now you can even be ordained to be able to marry uh, someone with their pets. So it's a special ordination you can get. So again, you see all these distorted ideas of marriage. Yet, although that sounds very disheartening, there is a, the problem of restoration, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. So the other big idea that I want to sell you is that marriage is good. It's a good thing. Despite all the countercultural narratives and all those other things, marriage is good. It's not good for a man to be alone. It's probably the high point of the creation narrative, this loving union between a man and a woman. 
It's clear, despite the challenges, besides the narratives, a godly marriage is something good and desirable. Let me repeat that one more time, just in case. A godly marriage is something good and desirable. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say it's probably one of the best parts of the created order. Yet marriage in our culture and even in our church is struggling. Couples are toiling in the weeds, and they've lost sight of the goodness of marriage. So it's not just marriage that it's des- that's desirable. It's a particular type of marriage. And in order to reach a goal, we have to an idea of what that goal is. So you're probably wondering at this point what love has to do with this. Again, love itself has a goal. We already kind of talked about, you know, that there's a particular goal in love. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a desire. It's tied in to certain goals and certain actions that are conformed to God's standard to reach that goal. Uh, The true benefit, again, is measured by God's standards. One of the ways that God's love is clearly expressed is through his grace and mercy. Grace itself implies an unmerited loving kindness. So the second goal of our marriage, or the primary goal of our marriage, might be that we would have a mutual desire to lavish each other with unmerited loving kindness. I would call this kind of like the grace zone, the the zone that you want your marriage to be in. This is desirable. And if you're not seeking this, you're ripping yourself off. It's as though you want to live in a pigsty when you can be living in the Father's house. And the person that you're hurting is you because you've become one with your spouse. You're united. So if you do something to undermine your marriage, you're really kind of kicking yourself. So how do we get to a godly marriage? Or what gets in the way of a godly marriage? Let's start with just disobedience to God's commands with idolatry, with vanity, too much work. We, today's commandment was anger, resentment, and self-abuse with alcohol or drugs, adultery, including pornography, not carrying your load, dishonesty, and jealousy. And those who practice such things will not have a godly marriage. Persistent, willful disobedience moves us from a condition of Grace, where grace abounds, to a condition where strife and consequences rule the day. We move from an economy of grace to this bartering economy, whereas I won't do this if you don't do that. Uh, you know, become strictly business. You know, our, our marriages become this commercial transaction. This is a bad position to be in a marriage. Now, usually about this point, Paul would have bought at least one volleyball example. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't really play volleyball. It seems kind of like a violent sport. I like jujitsu. Um, so I got a jujitsu exa- example. I think I could do a whole sermon on jujitsu and marriage, but I'll save you that for right now. So I got my first jujitsu lesson from Elio Gracie. At that time, he was 85 years old, he weighed about 132 pounds. And uh, I was 36. I was 175 pounds or somewhere in there. And I was a black belt in Taekwondo. So what could go wrong? They locked me in this little room with the, with, the, with the master. And before I could figure out how it was that I could fly across the room all of a sudden, I found myself 
in like the worst position you could be in a fight. And there was no kicking or punching my way out of it. So you've probably had that situation happen in your marriage where you're in that worst position, you know, where you're stuck there. So in jiu-jitsu, the first thing you learn is how to get out of those really bad positions. And so you use all these physical principles that you apply incrementally, and eventually you get enough leverage to get out of that position. Um, I would say the same thing happens in our marriages, you know, that you're stuck in a particular thing, but instead of physical principles, we need to apply moral principles. And these are things that we have to, number one, learn and understand, we have to practice, and we have to habituate. They have to become part of a habit of things that we do and things that we don't do, things that we avoid and things that we do. Um, so anyways, the goal is to be in this state of grace and to try and avoid this kind of state of disciplinary consequence. In Galatians five nineteen through 21, Paul writes about how the works of the flesh lead to a litany of sinful behaviors, followed by the warning of those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. On contrast, on the other hand, in 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 5, we read, For this very reason, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, practicing willful disobedience leads us away from the state of grace. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how idolatry leads to distorted passions, which leads to um, uh, 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 sinful behaviors, which lead to perversion of our desires, and ultimately a debased mind. On the other hand, practicing true faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, blood, brotherly affection and love leads us into the kingdom of God. So if our goal in marriage is to be in the zone of grace where we lavish our spouses or our spouse with unmerited favor, how do we avoid uh, falling into the zone of disciplinary consequentialism? In a simple word, obedience. Obedience to God's commands. They're not burdensome, but a blessing to God, to your marriage. And how do we develop good habits and character? Again, by practice. We start with the simple things, 
and we work our way up and build up to them. One other part of the jujitsu analogy is that not only do you learn how to get into bad, not to get get out of bad positions, the next thing you learn is how not to get into those bad positions. And so part of our marriage has to do with what not to do in order to get what we, we really deserve and want. So practice, how do we do that? First, we have to be hearers of God's word and doers of God's word. It's great to be part of a body that encourages and teaches one another to grow in love. So being part of the church, and we should be encouraging and supporting each other's marriages here at church. Now, if this is starting to sound like progressive sanctification, well, I would think that marriage does have this sanctifying effect. In marriage, we move from being an individual where it's all about me to thinking about the other part of us, our spouse. Spouse becomes, our spouse becomes who we are, and together you need to come to certain terms about who you worship and how you're going to use each other's time, talents, and treasures to grow in love. So again, God's commands are a good, um, a good template for how to proceed into this zone of grace. And so let's go through those. Um, so first and foremost is idolatry. Again, as couples, we need to get on the same page on who we're going to mutually subordinate our desires to. Our thinking and emotions and our, our actions need to be, to be directed to, to God. And this isn't with begrudging disobedience. This is with the understanding that it leads to mutual benefit for all the parties involved. And just as we're not to bear... Uh, God's name in vain, our marriages need to have substance. They don't want to be empty and meaningless. As a matter of fact, one of the categories that I read last night was this empty marriage where it's just like, yeah, we're married, but there's like no substance to the marriage. You know, it's kind of like you live as though you're single, even though, well, you're married. Uh, So um, part of it is to develop this substance and godly character to our marriage. Also, healthy marriages develop a rhythm of work and rest. And although there's this passive sense of rest where you do nothing, I would, I would um, propose that there is some enjoyment that happens on our day of rest. We're to enjoy and lavish about the things that God has done for us. So godly marriages develop a habit of enjoying one another. Not just every seven days. Um, but we seek to develop a habit of daily affection. My wife likes to have this when we wake up, when we leave, when we come home, and when we go to bed. Um, we, all, we, we should at least greet each other with a holy kiss. Then there's the whole issue of in-laws. i got to be careful what I say because my mother-in-law is here. And so... Although in marriage, we're to leave our father and our mother and become kind of a new unit, we're also not to abandon our parents, but honor them. And we're all in this one phase or another of this intergenerational transfer of wisdom, knowledge, and godliness. And it's through our marriages that these things get passed on. So although we're to leave them, we're supposed to honor them. And that includes your parents as well as your spouse's parents. Healthy marriages also appreciate life. 
we heard a little bit about murder and how this isn't just going out and killing someone. Uh, we're to engage in life-preserving activities and to avoid destructive habits, and you know what those are. Um, we're to care for one another's health, encouraging one another to stay healthy. And just as anger, I'm sorry, envy rots the, uh, the bones, anger has its own destructive consequences. We need to make a habit to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we need to make every effort that when we get angry, we're not to sin. And we're to make every effort to not let the sun go down on our anger. Anger critically undermines our marriages. So it shouldn't be surprised that we get angry when we feel cheated, robbed, or lied to. So that brings us to the next three commandments. They just kind of like little dominoes, they all fall together. Physical adultery and abandonment are commonly cited as gods for divorce, even in the church. But Jesus taught that adultery begins in our thought life. It takes a form, it, it takes various forms, beginning with the development of emotional bonds with another person, with a career, with a sport, or a hobby. Whatever it is, it starts to take cuts in our our uh, structure of affections with God, with our spouse, with our family, with our church family, and with our community. There's always a form of theft involved, and there's always some dishonesty that becomes part of the process. Apart from taking away our affections that belong to our spouse, we steal when we don't carry our load. A big part of marriage comes down to who's going to take out the trash. Managing the household and negotiating a complementary division of labor is something that we need to be gracefully and constantly appealing to. Otherwise, one spouse is going to get stuck doing um, all the work when their husband is out getting a mani-pedi with his bros. Again, I, I'm sure you thought that was going to go the other way, but we're living in a, in a new world, and it seems like a bad dream, but it's not. So in summary, it's not the end, this is just summary. Um, a godly marriage between a man and a woman is, the most, is one of the most desirable aspects of God's creation. It's better, it's much better than that 90-some Chevy. We ought to be seeking an environment in our marriages where it's easy to lavish our spouse with unmerited loving kindness. We stumble when our commands... Uh, when, when we break God's commands, particularly the two bookend commands, idolatry and covetousness, these all lead to a whole litany of false desires and practices. So how do we run the race with endurance to avoid the sin that so easily entangles us? We set our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to have our minds regularly transformed by the word and not conformed by the world. We need to pray together and encourage one another. So whether you're single or you're married, we need to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection 
with love. Finally, a godly marriage is a covenant based on God's precepts, not mine. Faithful obedience brings covenant blessings, and disobedience brings curses. Choose this day who you will serve. Choose God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thanks for this opportunity to just sit and listen to your word. Uh, Hopefully it will uh, mature us and build us up. We just pray for all the marriages in our congregation. We pray for the institution of marriage, that people would understand its godly roots and how it is that we would achieve a sense of peace and harmony in our relationships, both with our, our spouses, our family, but also in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.